Amen. Would you stand with me, please, once more this morning? Find a screen where it's comfortable for you to read, and let's read our series text found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Here we go. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. Eternal God, thank You for Your presence in this place today. Thank You that You are provider, Savior, healer, redeemer, king, Lord, judge. You are God above all gods. Jesus, we lift you up. Be exalted in this place in our praise. We offer the sacrifice of praise to you. We just ask today, Lord, that you would cleanse us of our sins. Forgive us, O God. As I open my mouth today, I pray as the psalmist prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I cannot do anything apart from you. I ask you today, Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do. Open eyes that can't see, open ears that can't hear. Strengthen lame legs to walk. Resurrect dead men. Call them out of their graves from spiritual bondage. Birth them into the kingdom of God today, I pray. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and glory. It's all about you, Jesus. And it's in that great and strong and mighty name that we pray. And everybody said. You may be seated this morning presence of the Lord. If you see these around town, this is what Jeremy was talking about. I'll be preaching Monday night, November 25th at Missouri Street Church of Christ. It is our community Thanksgiving celebration. The theme that I'll be speaking from is celebrating a season of hope. And I have great hope for this city, for this county, for the Delta, uh, just in terms of what I've seen the Lord do over the 25 years that we've been here. And uh, I'm excited to be able to celebrate that. This is no small, insignificant event because we'll be getting people in the same room together who for a long time have not been in the same room together. And that's huge. I believe that that, that sends a signal into the heavenly places where principalities and powers and demonic forces have kept a cloud over this city of separation, of prejudice that is obviously racial, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's Christian, non-Christian, it's denominational from one group to another. Uh, it's socioeconomic, it's all of those things. And, and I've begged for years, I've said, if we can't come together at one time, one moment, once a year as a community and, and recognize that the things that we believe and agree on are so much more than the few things that we disagree on, then we are kidding ourselves to think that we're really the body of Christ that's going to have any true effect in Crittenden County and in the Delta. And we've been seeing it grow. We've had brothers that the Lord's brought to the community that have built bridges, the least of which is certainly not Mike Seal. He's a hero in the kingdom of God, great friend of mine, the lead minister at Missouri Street Church of Christ. And so I ask you, if you would, please to come and join us. I'd like for your prayer support. Uh, to be there. <clears throat> it's going to be a wonderful evening, and I'm excited. I believe it's going to be a breakthrough uh, in the heavenly realms for Crittenden County. If you believe that, say amen. amen. This morning, um, we're, we're looking at another extended passage in the Gospel of Mark in this series called On His Mark, and we continually go back and utilize this, this series text, probably to the point maybe you guys were saying, man, we're going to say that again. And by now, you have it memorized. And that's really is the point. 
because we, 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 re, we revisit important themes. There's no way we can grasp the central concept of this book unless we've got this idea for which Jesus came. His mission statement, his, as the French said, raison d'etre, his reason to be, is tied up in Mark 10, 25. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he is the coach. He's the team leader. We are on team with him. And if we are going to be like our teacher, if we are his disciples, and the disciples' end goal is to be like the teacher to which he or she is apprenticed, then the idea is that we would begin to live a life and produce behavior that is fitting with his mark, on his mark. His mark is that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And God's called us not to come in here and go serve me or to get into a relationship and go, you're supposed to serve me, but we are supposed to be serving each other and laying our lives down for the brothers is what the Bible says. That includes the sisters too. Um, as, as we look at this passage today, we're going to be talking about the title of the message is called Getting Into the Kingdom of God. Uh, and, and I use that literally in the sense of the entrance, not in the sense of, man, I, you know, I really get into this. It's not talking about having an interest in it, in getting into something. But we're talking about what's the door? How do you get into it? How do I find myself now as a member of? I once was not, but now I am. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And so we ask this question because Jesus is going to give them an answer with little children and he's going to talk to a, a guy by the, that we, we know in the Bible as the rich young ruler. And if, if you've grown up in church or you've been in church for the last number of years, you've probably heard this preached on you know, a, a couple of times at minimum. And uh, I, I, I don't know that I'm bringing anything new, though I do believe that I can probably emphasize some things by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the amazing thing, that when the Spirit of God gets into something... He uniquely has the ability to translate that into your unique and individual needs. When, when, when I hear half a dozen people talk to me after service or for any one of our preaching ministers on staff who bring the word and I'll hear several different people say, you know, this really said this to me, this really said this to me, and every one of them will be different. And it's an impacting experience that those people go away with, having heard a word that's alive, having heard a word that's life-giving. Um, and when I say alive and life-giving, I don't just mean that it's packed with emotion or passion. I believe that if, if we're passionate about anything, we ought to be passionate about God. But it's not volume. Volume doesn't equal anointing. Uh, I can be whispering. And the anointing can penetrate the hard soil of a soul. It's, it's not about the, the, the charismatic calisthenics and the, the waving of arms and all of those kinds of things, although I do get pretty animated when I'm preaching. But it's the unique ability of the Holy Spirit alone not the giftedness of the speaker, none of those kinds of things. It's the Spirit's ability to personalize and individualize, to speak to issues of your life today. So we open our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, do that. Do it in me. Do it in each of us today. Getting into the kingdom of God. And I just I want to stop and define some terms very quickly because it's important that we don't shift gears and go into our southern churchianity mindset. Because when we start talking about getting into the kingdom of God, we, we just have this sort of initial response because we've been conditioned to think always in terms of uh, get a ticket to heaven and escape hell. And certainly uh, that is a byproduct of this. But, but I want you to know that the kingdom of God is not heaven. Certainly the kingdom of God is in heaven because the kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's the government of God. 
where Jesus is Lord, where the Spirit is Lord, where, where, where Jesus, where the Lord is, there is the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty, there is the extension of the government, the rule, the kingdom of God. Now, let me just remind you that when Jesus came in the very opening passages in the Gospel of Mark, He's told us specifically what uh, this whole thing is about. He said to His disciples as He comes on the scene after being baptized by His cousin John, He says, repent and believe the gospel. Everybody say, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It is the history-making, life-changing good news of Jesus Christ to be diametrically opposed to and set in contrast, contradistinction to the religious advice of the Pharisees. Advice is basically what religion gives. It tells you if you will do this, do this, do this, and do this in this order, and don't do that and don't do that, then you basically are accepted among the in crowd. And the distinction between religious advice and the gospel is that the gospel is news. News is not something that's telling you what to do. It's telling you an event that has happened. It's something that has already been done. Good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's not just the gospel or the good news about salvation, but it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom is at hand. It's no longer one of these days. The thing that the prophets have spoken of literally for centuries, it is now before you. I am here, Jesus says. I have arrived. And now, because I am bringing this as the herald and I'm announcing it, and literally in my presence is the very rule of the kingdom of God itself, he's basically saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. It's within your grasp. You can reach out and touch the rule of God, the government of God. The gospel is the announcement of that. It is the good news. Change your thinking, repent, change your mind, and believe the good news about the kingdom that is now here. It's not one of these days. It's not some glad morning when this life is o'er. It's not beautiful out of somewhere. It's not way out there in the distant future. It's not in a geographical location in the Middle East for one nation, Israel only, but it's for the whole earth. And Jesus basically is setting into inauguration this whole thing called the rule of God, the government of God. It's not about, nothing is even mentioned about heaven or hell in this passage. It's not about pray the sinner's prayer and you get your policy that you stick in the drawer, you've got your fire insurance and you just sort of file that thing away and just go ahead and live your life however you want to because you've done your transaction with God, you've shaken the pastor's hand, you've actually gotten wet, you've signed a card, you've prayed a certain prayer. All of that transactional kind of stuff is really not even what the kingdom of God is about. It is so much more than that. Everybody say, so much more. If anything, we embrace and believe in those crisis moments. We call them fresh starts here at Victory, where you have an opportunity to, be, to recognize that you're headed one way. And it's, there, there, is a, there is a way that every man thinks is right, but the end thereof ends in death, the Bible says. And you, you recognize you're on the wrong path and you repent. You do U-turn. You, you do a U-turn and you turn around and you begin to walk in the way of everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it's in that crisis moment where you enter the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God begins and you're walking in it. And it's not about something for the future, way out there in heaven someday. Heaven will take care of itself, but the kingdom of God is offered now. It's the rule of God. So don't shift gears on me and go back into that old religious kind of thinking because we've all been baptized in that. 
And we're trying to let the gospel impact us and let it wrestle with us. So this morning as we look to this extended passage, I'm going to break it down in segments. Mark 10, verse 13 through 16 to begin with. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Everybody say receive like a child. So he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. One very simple principle that I want to grasp under this. And that is that childlike faith gets you in. Everybody say childlike. Now, there's a distinction between childlike and childish. The amazing paradox of maturity is, is that the more we grow in God, the stronger we become, the more confident we are, settled in our identity now that we're in Christ, having been bought by the blood of the Lamb, filled with the Holy Spirit, purchased literally before the foundation of the world. In Christ, God settled it. He looked and He chose you. It's what the Bible tells us. The more we become settled in that, the, the, the stronger we become. Literally, it's kind of an opposite. It's a paradox because we're in this thing that's an upside-down kingdom where you die in order to live and you sow in order to reap and, and, and you serve from the bottom in order to, to be... You, you humble yourself in order to be exalted. You serve in order to lead. Everything is literally flipped upside-down on its head in this beautiful upside-down kingdom. And so as we learn to embrace that, literally, the more we mature, literally, the more we become childlike in our faith. Not childish, where we're fussing and fighting and scrapping with one another the way children do in childishness. But I, wanna, I want to emphasize the beautiful, positive aspect of childlike faith or childlike trust. It is, it, it's, it's, it's that beautiful example of a, of a father in the swimming pool and his daughter or his son are on the side and the dad is saying, jump to me, son, jump to me, son. And the child is a little bit intimidated and, and sort of backward and concerned. And, and you can see that there's some doubt on the, the, the little two-year-old's face. But the dad says, come on, I'm here. And so dad is not so far away, so he steps up a couple of steps. And so the, the baby feels a little bit more confident. And once you can just see all of a sudden faith begin to arise and a big smile and a determination and the child lunges and dad makes sure that he's there and wraps his big arms around that little boy or that little girl and then he or she shouts in glee filled with joy because of just, in, just enjoying the love and the, the trust that has been fulfilled because he or she reached out and trusted what daddy said. And, and that's literally what Jesus is saying you won't get into the kingdom of God until you're able to understand that kind of innocent trust, that kind of faith that you are determined to, to walk in, to understand the goodness and the blessing and the nature of God and how crazy He is about you. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. If God had a picture on His refrigerator in heaven, if He had one, it would be on His refrigerator, a picture of you, because that's how crazy He is about you. And that is just so foreign sometimes to some of our ways of thinking because we've been raised in such a legalism and just such a God is angry up on the brow of a hill just watching, waiting for you to miss it so he can just slap you upside the head. 
And some of us grew up in churches like that, and we're still bearing marks and bruises because we thought that was the spiritual thing to do. And none of you raised your children hopefully like that. When correction comes, it certainly comes, but it's for a therapeutic reason. It's to encourage and aid and to grow and round out and to adjust. It's a blessing. It's, it's even there offered as a gift of grace. Somewhere along the line, we, 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 we lost that awareness. And I understand. I understand the, the wrath of God. And I understand the bad news of the law. And I, and I want to tell you, I preach that here at Victory, but I don't stop there with that. It's not just the bad news. It's not you better turn or burn or you're going to bust hell wide open. Ha <laughs> ha. And it's preached with fervor and anger and, and veins are popping and the eyes are... The wrath of God is... Let me just tell you, we, we are so messed up about this concept. The, the Bible says in John 3.30, He that hath the Son has life, but he that hath not the Son has not life, and the wrath of God abides on him already. You know, there, there are people out here in this community that don't have Jesus Christ, and they're not walking around uh, in... You remember, who was that character on Peanuts? that everywhere he walked, there was just this cloud of dust that just got stirred up. Pig pen. Well, you know, there, there are people out here who don't know Jesus, and they've got great marriages, and they're raising good kids, and they're successful in their businesses, and have lovely homes, and it doesn't seem like there's any wrath that's abiding on them. And what we don't understand is that wrath literally is this concept of God letting you keep having what you want until you just get so full of it that you realize it's not going to satisfy you. Romans 2 says that there are people that they're wicked that are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And what you don't realize is the account is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it will reach that point of consuming fire. So hopefully along the way, we get a good enough taste. God gives us a cupful, like He did Jacob, of whatever we're pursuing, whether it's, whether it's an addictive pattern of behavior or an improper immorality or it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a chemical addiction or something like that, whatever it is, he'll just let you get a real good taste of it until that train wrecks and you hit, hit the wall and you cry out in desperation. And then you're ready. Then you're ready to say, God, I desperately need you. And that's when he rushes in like a mighty wind and saves you and redeems you and turns it all around and, and, and takes all your mess and makes it a message. Come on, somebody. thing is, is that there's just some people I'm just going, God, let them live long enough to make it to that point where they crowd in desperation. Because it's like some folks just can't learn. And, and I'm convinced that somewhere along the way I've been like that. I've, I've been in that place. Don't confuse childlike with childish. I'm, I'm reading a book lately that's just rocking my world. It, it's called The Hole in Our Gospel. It's by Richard Stearns, who is the current president of World Vision, which ministers to impoverished areas with starving children and homelessness and AIDS in Africa and a number of different kinds of relief efforts. And the most amazing thing that I left out of my 9 o'clock message when I preached this was that he, this guy had, a, had, had the picture book family. I mean, he was a millionaire driving a Jaguar XJ8. He was the CEO of a major company. As a matter of fact, he and his wife had become Christians when they first got saved and the Lord just seemed to favor his life. He became the CEO of two major companies. And when he was the CEO of the Linux China Company, selling fine china to the rich people around the world, he's sitting on the board of his children's Christian school. Um, he's a respected leader and elder in the church that they're a part of. 
and he gets a call from a friend of his that is on the board of World Vision. And he tells the six-month story about how it literally is God hunting him down to lay down the lifestyle that he has become so accustomed to and to some degree had kind of idolized and made a God out of it. And it, it, it's the amazing story. If you'll get this, the first three, three chapters will grab you. And he's talking about the hole in our American gospel. And I, and I want to read a passage. I actually put it here and typed it into my iPad. In the introduction, he says, I'm a Christian, perhaps you are too. But what does that mean exactly? To even be Christians, we must first believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That in itself is no small idea. If it is true, it changes everything. Because if Christ is God, then all that He said and did is deeply significant to how we live our lives. So we believe. But God expects more. Everybody say those last four words. But God expects more. Say it like you mean it. Come on. But God expects more. And so the subject of the book is basically what does God expect? He says there is a hole in our American gospel. He says we've basically preached a transactional kind of gospel where you say a sinner's prayer and God in turn makes the promise to save you from hellfire. And we sort of follow the way in the drawer like a fire insurance policy. And he said, it is very true that we're supposed to have a personal transforming relationship with God. He said, but the hole in our gospel is this, is that we're also to have a public transforming relationship with the world. We're to be involved with the world actively as salt in corruptive areas and light in dark places. Come on, somebody. Uh, there is, come on, go ahead, put your hands together. Give Jesus some praise. The gospel is not just about a personal transforming relationship with Jesus, with God, but it's also about a public transforming relationship with the world. I'm supposed to be involved in this planet here. This thing is not just about, the gospel is not just about me hearing that Jesus will save me from hellfire and that I've got an assurance that I have a ticket to heaven when it comes my time. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Nothing wrong with that. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 90. When we die... We fly away to Him. Now, I want you to understand that the kingdom of God is more than that. Jesus is not talking about a heaven-hell proposition here. He's basically saying, look, this is an invasion on the planet, and I'm bringing a new world order. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to bear here, and I'm asking you to come get on the team with me and come play by my rules. We're going to shake this thing up. We're going to turn this whole thing upside down. This whole status symbol of the way the world operates and you work hard, you get more, you earn more, you, you protect everybody else from touching your more. And all of the pursuit of all the stuff. And this is when a young man runs up to Jesus. A very powerful young man. The Bible calls him the rich young ruler. Look at this. Verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let me stop right there. I don't believe that Jesus is denying his divinity here. I believe he's saying, look, all of you guys know that only God is good, and you know this. So are you recognizing something by here calling me that? Because only God is good. Okay, so Jesus goes on and he says, 
to answer your question, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Oh yeah, and honor your father and mother. So when Jesus lists the commandments, these are all part of the second table of the law. I could sum this up in three words. Love thy neighbor. Say that with me. Love thy neighbor. The first table of the law all has to do with our relationship to God. It's the upward bar of the cross. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. Not have any, don't worship any graven images or bow down to any idols, commandment number two. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain, number three. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those four commandments all deal. They're the upward bar of the cross, my upreach to God. But then the last six, six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day in the book of Genesis. Six always speaks of man. Fast forward ahead of the book of Revelation and the number of a man and his completion of sinfulness is marked with three sixes. Three meaning complete. Six, 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 the number of a man, the mark of the beast. I'm not going to chase that rabbit, but it just bears out with this whole concept of six being the number of man. So six, the last six commandments all deal with my relationship with people. Now the first man that you have a relationship with, the first person that you meet, the first people that you come into a relationship with when you come out of the womb are whom? Father and your mother. So by virtue of order, that commandment that first relates to you and speaks to you in your new existence here on the planet is honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the earth. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, it's the first commandment that comes with a promise. In other words, you do it, then you're going to live longer. You can inhabit the land, you can take dominion, you'll be blessed. Once you put your hand to it, it'll prosper. If you honor your parents. Somebody say amen. And then he, Jesus lists all of the rest of them in order. Number six is no murder. Number seven is no adultery. Number eight is no stealing. Number nine is no lying. Number ten is no, in, no envy, no covetousness. So he lists all of those, says them a different way. Do not defraud one another. Okay? All of these commandments that he basically gives right here are all in the second table of the law. Love thy neighbor. Okay? Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the law even in the first place. Because after all, we remember that we cannot be saved by the law, can we? So is Jesus teaching here that if you keep these that you can get in? I don't think so. Just hang with me. When Jesus uses the law and the gospel, the word of God is made up of both. And we don't ignore one over the other. And in some places, the reason the good news doesn't have the effect that it should is because people have never heard the bad news first. Until you've heard the bad news of the righteous requirement of the law of God and the holiness of God in His demand for the penalty of sin, which is death, and you get in that place where you know that the sentence has been passed and your neck is on the block. You're headed to the electric chair. You're headed to the cross. Basically, the sentence has been passed. You deserve death. But then you hear the amazing good news of the gospel. Wait, there's someone who has stepped up and already taken your place and has paid the penalty for what you owe yourself. He owed a debt. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Amazing grace. I now sing this brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus Paid the debt that I could never pay. That's the gospel. But the good news isn't good until you hear how bad the bad news is. And too many times we've made it an easy believism in our churches. And we've said a sinner's prayer. And we've, we think we've conducted some transactional transformation with God. And it's not just in a few words. 
It's not just in magic beans with Jack and the Beanstalk. It's not just some fairy tale. It's, it's, it, there's, there's reality to this that transforming life has come into me. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I can walk. Hallelujah. There's a difference. Jesus uses the law in order to get his attention because the law has a job description. It's like you getting your bank statement and you're already NSF and you don't know it until the full weight of opening that envelope and you go. <gasps> and you see they've already tacked on those $14 million worth of NSF charges on there. And I, it's happened to me. And, and I go, okay, why did you keep trying to send that check through? Why did you call me? It was an honest mistake. It happens. It happens to the best of us. It happens to all of us. But the bank statement comes and it just, it lowers the boom on me that I'm not in nearly as good a shape as I thought I was in. And that's what the law is supposed to do. It breaks me. It humbles me. It bankrupts me. It sends me to my knees where I'm at a place of desperation and I cry out to God. And all of a sudden, the good news really is so amazingly good that I'm overwhelmed by it. Have you ever wondered why sometimes Jesus uses the law and sometimes he doesn't? Why do some people get a pass and sometimes he just like opens a can on these people? He just goes stone cold on some of these folks. Rich young ruler was one of them. You know, some pope, most preachers today would say, Jesus, why don't you just chill out a little bit, soft pedal it. Have him pray a sinner's prayer and put him on your deacon board. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's got influence. Ease up, Jesus. That's the way a lot of people think. That's the way a lot of pastors operate. That's the way a lot of churches run. And therefore, no real transformation gets put into place. We're honoring status. We're looking at somebody's position and their possessions. And Jesus says, I don't ever look at the outward, but I look on the heart that other people can't see. I'm not interested in your stuff. I'm not interested in your status. I'm interested in your stand with me. And if all your stuff and your status gets in the way of your stand with me, then you've made it a God. Look what Jesus says. Now, let me, just, let me just show you that sometimes Jesus doesn't always use the law. Remember in John 8, when the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery was dragged before Jesus and flung at His feet, barely holding the sheet around her near-naked body because she had been caught in breaking the seventh commandment and knew that Literally, her life was on the line. She could be stoned right there in that moment because the Pharisees had a bag of rocks in their hands ready to carry out judgment. Jesus never mentions the law to her. She'd already been trapped. And she didn't break the law. The law had broken her. And she was about to receive her just desserts. But Jesus takes the law off of her because she's desperate and crying out for mercy. And I believe he turns around and he writes in the sand and he takes the commandment of God with the finger of God and he writes it in the sand and every one of those accusers are standing there seeing something that they've broken and they're being reminded of it. And Jesus says, any of you that are without sin, and he points at the laws that are listed there, probably some of their sins listed, cast the first stone and they all drop their rocks and walk off. Jesus used the law on the rich young ruler. Jesus applied grace to the woman caught in adultery. Why? She was already broken. Her life was already on the line. She already knew that unless she had a Savior who would take her place, she was going to die. 
Now the people that were ready to kill her, he turned and used the law on them. So why is it that Jesus does this? Because the law is like the bank statement arriving, making me aware of my already NSF, my insufficient fund status. I've got a bank account and I'm in the red. I owe God. I can't buy enough Girl Scout cookies and walk enough grannies across the street to make up for the mess that I'm in. And the law accuses me. And the law can't save me. The law's never saved anybody. That's not the job description of the law. The law is supposed to break me so I can say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When I recognize I don't have anything apart from Him, then I, everything He has opens up to me. Hallelujah. Are you getting anything out of this? Mark 10, 20 through 22. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, ain't that something? Ain't that something? Why, Jesus? I, you know what? I just, I've, I've done all that. I've honored my mom and my daddy. <laughs> hadn't stolen anything. Haven't committed adultery. Haven't killed anybody. Hadn't defamed or defrauded or lied on anybody. And haven't coveted anything, Jesus. I'm just doing real good walking in all those commandments that you just listed there, Jesus. And I love this. This is so amazingly powerful. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I'm so thankful that when I, in my stupid arrogance, think that, Jesus, I got this. I've been doing pretty good here lately. Jesus, you know, I know me and you, we're just kind of riding the range of glory together. You, you the Lone Ranger, I'm your Tonto, Jesus. <laughs> we just got this thing covered. Jesus loves me in my stupidity. He loves me in my outrageous religious arrogance when I'm overconfident and cocky in my theological principles and all that I think I know about it. And He still looks at me and He looks at you and He looks at the rich young ruler and He loves him and He loves him with an indescribable, Jeremiah says, an everlasting love. And this is what he says. And he said to him, young man, you lack one thing. Everybody say one thing. He says, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What Jesus was pointing out was, you know what? You probably have done pretty well in commandment 5 and 6 and 7, 8, 9 and 10. But let's go back to the very first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You got a lot of stuff, young man. And this, it's not that you have the stuff. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. But the stuff's got you. And where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I'm after your heart. And I can't get to your heart because it's so consumed with how you manage all your stuff and how you have to protect all your stuff and your, your stuff has produced your status and your possessions have given you a position and they're standing in the way of being able to put God in primary place number one. Your stuff is great. I want you to have stuff. Nothing wrong with status if you can manage it right. But when your stuff and your status gets in the way and affects your stand with me, then we've got a problem. You have an idol. John Calvin said, the heart of man is an idol factory. People, it's not about, it's not bowing before a carved totem. It's not lifting up and praying to an animal or something that's a created being that has been made by the Creator and calling it God. It's not a golden calf. It's not something like that. I can, I can make my wife an idol. I can make this church an idol. 
I can make my ministry an idol. I can make my children whom I love dearly an idol. Anything that I put primary before God, it's an idol. And Jesus says, I want your heart. I want you. And anything that's going to stand in the way between me and you, then you're going to have to be willing to lay it down. Now, is there anything wrong with having stuff? Is there anything wrong with having wealth? Absolutely not. If you can have it and it doesn't own you. Look at his response, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I I, I would share with you that I really think this translation is not fully complete. Because if you really dig into the Greek, he was angry. His face was, his countenance was fallen. He was not just sad, he was mad. Jesus had touched his idol. He had taken the law of God to show him, look buddy, you're NSF in this area and you need to make this adjustment. Now, this is the thing that we do in America because we are so consumed with our American dream. And the gospel has gotten so confused and wrapped up in it because of this whole radical prosperity message. Now, let me just back up and tell you right now. Do I believe that Jesus wants you to be blessed? Absolutely. I quote the scriptures, Psalm 35, 27. The Lord delights in the prosperity of His servant. But when it gets pushed into such an out-of-balance extreme the way we see on a number of these TV preachers, and I'm not going to mention names, it's between them and God. But when it becomes a transactional kind of a situation where you give in order to make God give you ten times, a hundred times as much, then you're just basically plugging a quarter into a heavenly slot machine and standing there going, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Don't shout me down now. Do I believe God heals people? Absolutely. Do do, do I preach the health and wealth message? No. Does the the gospel teach Jesus heals? Yes. Do I preach the prosperity message? No. Does, Does the Bible teach that God wants to prosper what you put your hand to? Yes. There's a difference when you push that thing across that line and you always ignore all of the passages where it tells us that there will be suffering in this lifetime, then we're preaching a gospel with a hole in it. And we're painting these cloud-like, airy pictures of of something that is ethereal, that that doesn't happen in most people's very real day-to-day lives. We struggle, but thank God in the middle of the struggle, Jesus is in the boat with us. Yes, Jesus heals. Yes, Jesus blesses. Yes, Jesus prospers. Thank you, Lord. I believe those promises. And I stand on those promises. And I will pray for you for those promises. But I would be lying if I told you that there were not problems that we face in this life. That we struggle, that we will struggle until we see Him face to face. And all of the curse has been rid from this side. Come on somebody. Man's pride, Jesus' love. He's prideful. He says, I've been doing it, doing a good job. Jesus says, no, no, wait a minute. You got, there's one thing here you need to get in line. His possessions, His position, His stuff, His status. Mark 10, 23-25, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me just stop right there and tell you how that was translated to my little mama, who's now been with the Lord almost a couple of years. And she grew up in a church where they were taught that poverty was spirituality. 
because they would pull this one scripture out of context. And let me just say this. I think sometimes God uses a message that sometimes comes in an extreme in order to bring people out of one extreme and then finally bring them back to a place of balance. And it was in the late 1940s, early 1950s, where the real roots of the whole health and wealth thing began to be preached. And, and my, my folks sort of got in on the front end of that and began to trust that the promises of God were that if they belonged to Christ, they were Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And God told Abraham that he would be blessed. His, he would be a blessing. That he, through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And my folks started trusting God for blessing. And guess what happened? When they started believing God for blessing, God started blessing. And he started pouring out the blessings. And I believe there's a reality to that. There's a truth to that. And so they'd grown up in this little whole, you know, extreme Pentecostal, extreme poverty, a lot of ignorance. Mom tells the story about when she was a little girl, how she just walked by a public swimming pool and was standing on the outside with her fingers curled into the, to the, to the fence looking. And someone went and told on her because my granddad was a deacon in the church of God. And the deacon's daughter is standing down there where they're public bathing, which I have never understood. Ain't nobody out there taking a bath. Nobody naked. I've never understood those words. And, and mom got in trouble because she just a little girl, just a little eight or nine-year-old girl walking by. Summertime, it's hot. She's thinking, man, I'd sure like to be in that cool water. And she stops and looks for a minute. And somebody saw and pharisaical religious spirit. Didn't call on the phone because there were no telephones back then. But they started the gossip campaign around town. The deacon's daughter, so the deacon's in trouble. Just that constant. God deliver us from that kind of mess in the family of God. But just always got to be poor. Matter of fact, mom said that they used to say years ago, way back in the, the 30s and the 40s in the church of God, they'd, they would literally pray. They would say, Lord, you keep our preacher humble. Keep him full of the Holy Spirit. You keep him humble. We'll keep him poor, Lord. You think I'm kidding you. But that's the truth. Now those brothers back that day literally were believing for their next meal because the church didn't want to pay them anything. I'm thankful that we got delivered from those days. Don't shout me down. <laughs> it's all about balance. Because you can take one thing and ignore the opposite of what's in the Word and you can really create a monster. Because, you know, guess what happens? You know what? you got all the prosperity preachers taking all the prosperity scriptures and they memorize them and preach them and ignore all the poverty and, and the suffering scriptures. And you, you go over here and find your good Roman Catholic people and the Mother Teresas of the world that are out here touching AIDS babies and leprous children and loving on them and showing what the real gospel is like out there in the impoverished areas. And they're telling you that you ought to lay it down and don't let moth and rust collect and, and lay up treasures not here but in heaven. And they're preaching only the poverty scriptures. And they're ignoring the prosperity ones. And the, the, the answer is, is, which one of them is right? And I want to go stand in the middle and go, yes, they're both right. If you've got all of this, then bless God, meet the needs of some of these people that are in need. And if you don't, don't sit here and look at them and lust after it. Because guess what? The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of it is the root of all evil. And you don't have to have any of it to be possessed with love for it. You can be poor as Job's turkey, the way my granddaddy used to say. <laughs> they must have been in the bad time of Job's life. 
Let me finish this, okay? <coughs> I'm having a good time. I don't know if anybody else is. <coughs> how difficult will it be for those who have wealth enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter. Getting into the kingdom of God. It's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we're talking about obstacles at the entrance. What are the things that are in the way? What is the one thing that was in your way before you came to Christ? Was it an addiction? Was it lust? Was it improper relationship? Was it uh, wrong business dealings? Was it any number of things? Everybody in the room has had one thing. Some of us have had a number of things. Everybody's had one thing that you've had to lay down in order to get a hold of Jesus because He wants your heart. What are the obstacles at the entrance? And the, the whole point is that when Jesus starts to talk to these people about this, it's not that there, there's anything intrinsically wrong with wealth. It's what we do with wealth. And when we get enough of it, it can be, deceive us. The deceitfulness of riches. You live in a $1.2 million house on the ninth hole of a famous golf course and you've got a four-car garage and $100,000 in cash in the bank and stocks and portfolio and great kids going to Ivy League schools and you're the CEO of a company, you don't think about any kind of life in desperate terms. You don't even think you need anything. And that's what wealth does to you. It fools you thinking, hey, I got this. I can, I can make this thing work. I, I'll do a little bit of creative financing. I'll pull from my savings account. Guess what happens when life hits and there is no more savings account? Wealth deceives us. It makes us think that we can handle it, that we can run this thing. And Still, everywhere we go, no matter how much you have, whether you are a bazillionaire or whether you don't have anything, you're in the red, we all still must come through the same Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, you know what? You can be rich, but you can still be poor in spirit. That means you realize that apart from Him, you really have nothing. God, apart from you, I'm in poverty. This stuff doesn't count for anything. And a man or a woman who can say that about their stuff probably will have the ability to have a lot more stuff because Jesus has their heart. Because that's the real issue. The stuff doesn't have us. Now, since the ninth century, there has been this idea. There's a challenge as to whether or not there's really any historical evidence for it. But at night when the main gates of the city would be closed for a wayward traveler to be able to get in and have the protection of the walls around the city the, the armed guards at the gates wouldn't open the great big gates because there could very well be the possibility of some robbers or thieves or some bad people out there hiding in the darkness and so a wayward traveler doesn't make it to town before sundown and if he is going to in his entourage with him a couple of camels, a couple of people maybe his wife, son, daughter, whatever and he's got his belongings on the back of the camel, the only way he's going to be able to get into town is not through the great, big, expansive, wide gate that opens up and lets him come through, but he literally is going to have to carry that camel through a little bitty short, very narrow space in the wall of the city referred to as the Eye of the Needle. It's believed that there were inns that actually had these at well in order to be able to protect the guests that were already there staying on the inside to protect them from robbers and thieves that may be attempting to come in there would have to be an entrance through a gate that would, to some degree, bring you down into a humble position. The, a full-grown man, six feet tall, couldn't walk under this eye of the needle, literally, because he would have to bow. 
and probably squat to some degree. And a great big tall nine, eight, nine foot camel, however tall it is at the neck and the, on the height of the hump, literally that camel's going to have to be unpacked. All of the baggage that he is carrying in for his master is going to be removed from him. And the, the camel's going to get down on his knees and the, the owner of the camel will take the rein at the mouth of the camel and squat and go through and the camel will have to come through like this, literally inching his way in through the wall of the city. It's the idea that if a camel is going to go through the eye of the needle, it can't go through in its own strength, proud, standing tall. Any sense of personal responsibility or arrogance but it's going to be a humbling place of getting on the knees, which is where God brings us all to in order to get into the city, to get into the kingdom of God. Now, whether that story is actually true or not, and there are challenges to its historical validity, I'm fine with just going back to the literal interpretation and Jesus saying, you want to get that beast right there through a needle eye that big? It's impossible. But Jesus responds in just a moment to his disciples and he says, well, it's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. So God has a way. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, God has a way. All right, I'm wrapping this up. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The disciples are hopeless but Jesus is hopeful. He is filled with hope. Guys, this isn't about how you can do it, but it's about putting your trust in God who will bring you through. Last section this morning and we're finished. Mark 10, 28-31. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. That's the part that doesn't get preached. Everybody say, with persecutions. With persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are last will be first and the last, I'm sorry, many who are first will be last and the last first. Basically what I want to say to you is this, that there is a cost to following Jesus. And we need to count the cost. We need to recognize that there is absolutely nothing that I will ever lay down for him that he will not overwhelm me with in this lifetime and in the world to come. Now, prosperity preachers take this passage and they make it a high-octane prosperity passage, basically saying you give up a house that you're going to get a hundred of them. And I just have a problem with making that a literal promise because you lose your mama, you're not going to get a hundred mothers. Are you, are you following me? So let's look at the whole text. I believe what this is saying is that when we lay down something for God and for the sake of the gospel, that God's going to bring us into a spiritual family and we're going to have so much more than we ever had, moving in and out of houses and fellowshipping with brothers and sisters. And maybe, maybe we have to lay down for a, a season, maybe even permanently, a relationship with a brother naturally in this world but when I do that for the gospel's sake you're going to have a whole bunch of other brothers that are sitting in this room that are going to be brothers and sisters to you 
And probably what God wants to do in you and through you is to make your life an example so you can take the gospel by grace back to that brother that you have now temporarily been separated from. God restores. I don't believe that we can wrangle this scripture and say that God wants to put every one of you in the real estate business where you flip a hundred houses in the New Jerusalem. Love it or list it. Sorry. I gotta put my editor back in gear. If you had any idea, the parade. Somebody said, I can't believe you said that, Sunday. I said, Well, you ought to have heard what I was editing. <laughs> I believe that whatever we give, there's no way you can ever outgive God. Whatever you give up, He's going to multiply and overwhelm you in this lifetime and in the world to come, but with persecutions, with problems. There's going to be some suffering. Anybody who doesn't read that to you and say, get ready. I'm going to, I'm going to offend a couple of people here, but put your big girl panties on. And realize you're going to have some problems. Coming to Jesus doesn't deliver us from all of them, but He promises to be our strength in the midst of them and through them. And you know what? You think you got this thing? Some of you guys think you're first in line, and what you don't realize is those thieves and prostitutes are going to turn their hearts to Jesus, and they're going to get in the door before you do. The last will be first. And those that look like they're putting on a good show religiously, they're first in line, but they're really going to be last in this thing. And if they don't repent, they're not getting in at all. <clears throat> That's what Jesus said. One last thing, and I'm finished. David in Psalm 24 says it this way, One thing have I to ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And so I, I end with this this morning. So what? So what? So what's it going to be? What, what is your one thing? What, what really is standing between you? What's the obstacle between you and really just slap giving your whole heart to Jesus? What is it? Everybody in the room's got something. I, and I have, to, I have to revisit this because it's so easy over a period of time. It's amazing how Richard Stearns tells the story of trusting in God and, and then finding a place in his life where he literally is a multi-millionaire as the CEO for the Linux China company and that he's invited to just lay all of that down and take a cut in salary where he would be earning 25% of what he used to make. But God kept calling him, kept calling him, kept calling him, kept calling him to lay his life down. And he gives the testimony that never in his life has he ever been so fulfilled as he is right now as the president of World Vision. Not setting tables with expensive china for the rich, but taking a morsel of food to a homeless, starving child in Uganda. And literally putting legs on the gospel. Nothing wrong with fine china and great cars and big houses. God deliver us from letting those things own us. Let us own them and let us be blessed and utilize the things that you have blessed us with in order to bless other people in the kingdom of God. What's, what's your one thing? The law of reduced interest brings us all down to one thing. What, what is it that it's going to take me to move around or to lay down in order to be able to 
fully embrace all that God has for me. Bow your heads with me, please, for a word of prayer.